Welcome back to the podcast. And in this episode, I interview Michelle Taylor. She is a special education teacher in the Flint, Michigan area. And I really appreciate her coming on this episode and just talking about the knowledge that she has in working specifically with children. And she's working specifically with children kindergarten through second grade. But she has just a wealth of knowledge about how we can take our understanding of neurodivergent people, even though she works with children, and then also turn around and apply it to adults as well. And so we really spend a significant amount talking about cognitive behavioral therapy versus occupational therapy, how that helps us to live out our vocation. Uh, We do talk a little bit about medication, the advantages of medication and how you would go about getting tested um, or talking to a doctor about medication. And then let's talk about the advantages of getting tested and how having a diagnosis will help you move forward in different ways. I ask her about the advantages of being neurodivergent. Sometimes we talk about different neurodivergent diagnoses as a handicap and the ways that we need to overcome them. But I also want us to spend time thinking about the advantages that we bring to our work. And so I've included a a link in the show notes um, about a book called Thinking in Pictures. Her name is Temple Grandin. She tells her story of autism being diagnosed and how she learned to overcome the challenges and the obstacles, but then also really leaned into her gift and used it uh, to radically change her vocation and industry. It happens to be with livestock, and she creates livestock pens and shoots for farms, rodeos, and whatever, people who work with livestock. And she's designed some of the most elaborate livestock corrals and solved different problems. I don't understand all the problems that there are with uh, livestock, and um, but she's revolutionized her industry by really leaning into her gifts. And so what if, as clergy, uh, we really leaned into our gifting uh, and we, could, we revolutionized um, our industry, our vocation, uh, our institution, Now more than ever, we need people who are innovative uh, and who are willing to throw away the box, so to speak, and approach the dynamic of proclaiming the good news, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth in a completely revolutionary way. We really need to, we need to see a new reformation, if you will. And I do believe that this is the time, like we are really at a precipice especially with this, as we're coming out of this global pandemic, where we could, I think, maybe throw away everything <laughs> and start from scratch. Um, but it's going to take people leaning into their gifts and also people who are brave enough to do uh, something radical to see the kingdom come. So enjoy the episode. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy, and the church, because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? 
this is primarily uh, working with the neuro neurodivergent students. Is that's your your hot topic? My bachelor's was actually with working with chronically ill children in a hospital setting. Oh. But then when I went back to get my master's, I tend to gravitate toward um, the kid who is what we might say bouncing off the walls uh, because I was that kid. I know exactly what that's like and I'm kind of attracted to working with those type of kids. And so I just gravitated towards school social work. So what's your master's in then? Social work, right? It's school social work. And then my bachelor's degree was in child life therapy, which is chronically ill children um, doing play therapy with them. Um, and so you are working in, what school district are you in again? I'm at Bendel Schools. And that's like the Flint area? It's right outside of Flint. Yeah, we're on Bristol Road, that area. What, so your position there, like what primarily, like what are your, your primary role responsibilities, roles? We're very lucky in our district um, because we are a little bit different than most districts. Uh, most districts only have one social worker for the entire district. And right. we actually have one social worker for each one of our buildings, which is very rare. So my job in my building, which is a K through two building, is to work with kids who are identified as special ed and then also at risk kids, which could be students who struggle with behavior, they've had um, a grief or loss situation, it could be anything like that. So just about anybody in the building can access me and use me for support. Well, K through, K through second grade, soon they have three grades in there. Wow. It's uh, great. Yeah, I could imagine. I mean, uh, my children's pastor at my church is a, uh, she's a second grade teacher. And those first three years are so important to get a diagnosis and to catch it early and to have people who are, because that's kind of how we end up in the situation. We have a lot of adults who were not ever diagnosed until, you know, if they get, did get diagnosed, it was when they had children and then their children were starting to exhibit these behaviors. So, yeah, I think that's uh, critical in those first few years. I'm, I'm sure you would say the same thing. So, what we see in children and what we see in adults, it maybe is a little bit different, probably because you've got brain development, neuro, neurological development that happens, uh, and then just developmental stages that happens from, you know, that through adulthood until they're 25. So talk about maybe what are some of the key things that you would look for in young children and then how might that look different if an adult who maybe is neurodivergent and is undiagnosed? I think when we look at those young kids that start in kindergarten, we want to look at how they solve problems. Um, so right away, if we have a child who struggles to manage um, feelings like anger or worry, those kind of things, if, if they're what we call dysregulated, where they're having outbursts or they're not able to sit and focus, those are the things that we most look at is, the, is that ability to regulate. Then we look at how do they get along with peers? Are they able to solve those problems? And if they're typically, if they have trouble regulating their body, then they have trouble kind of solving problems with kids because they might not even be aware of what their body is doing sometimes. It's not until you kind of say, hey, whoa, let's slow down for just a second. What just happened there? Let's look at your friend's face. How are they feeling? Um, and it's not until we bring that awareness about where they, where they can notice, oh yeah, they're really mad. They didn't like when I did that. I did that. So there's a lot of those steps that we're looking for. Are they able to recognize 
and do some self-reflection about their own behavior when they're solving problems? Can they share? Do they manage disappointment well? Can they plan? This is a big one because this is the one that you find a lot of adults who are neurodivergent struggle because part of planning, even doing your work, you have to think about what you're going to do and have a plan of I'm going to do this first and then this step is next and we'll see kids freeze up and just not do work. And then uh, what we notice is if you're not aware of that, that's an executive functioning um, skill, then, then you might think that that kid's being oppositional or refusing to do work or he just wants to play where it could be um, an executive functioning thing where they just don't have the planning, the cognitive planning in order to do that. And they might need some assistance. So we look at those type of things when we're identifying those kids early on. Because some of the things you were saying to me, I thought were interesting because there's a, there's a line, right? Because there's some of it, you're just, you're teaching your children, you're teaching your children how to regulate themselves, how to, um, how to share, how to recognize social cues and those kind of things. But then apparently there is a place where somebody who's neurotypical moves on and maybe somebody who's not gets stuck. Yeah, or they struggle, or they're developing a little bit slower. Um, you know, we have kids who say, if you're cognitively impaired, you need a lot of repetition with a skill, even a skill like behavior, sharing, taking turns, those kind of things. There, there's a need for repetition. Um, so sometimes it takes them much, much longer to acquire that skill. Um, and we just see that they struggle to put it into practice. Sometimes they get it when you're talking about it, when they're regulated, but when they're dysregulated, uh, it's harder for them to put it in practice. And so we talk about, about that being called, it's called co-regulation, where you're helping them to regulate and walking them through the process. And you might have to co-regulate for a long time before they're able to just regulate, but that's the ultimate goal. Eventually, we're going to get them to the point where they can regulate all on their own. So if you get to, an, if you get to being a, an adult, right, because one of the things we know is that it doesn't go away, which I think is a misunderstanding. Some people think that you grow out of, you grow out of your ADHD, you grow out of your sensory processing disorder, what, you know, you grow out of your autism, uh, folklore and myth that people pass down. How does that look different in adults from children? If someone were to to observe it in an, in an adult, they might notice um, what we would call nervous behaviors. It might be fidgeting. It could be pacing. I used to have someone who would kind of shuffle things in their hands. It can be anything like that, or it could just be poor planning where they're always late for everything. They don't turn in their work. They're so smart, but they're always late turning in their work or they don't turn it in at all or they kind of get lost in the details of things. I mean, there's so many little things that, that can, it's different for each person. That's, that's the interesting thing about, you know, when you're neurodivergent, it, it's look, it looks different for every person, but those are kind of some of the hallmarks where they're just struggling. Um, and you either see it physically in their body, whether they're able to kind of regulate their body, or it could just be in their ability to organize themselves and kind of execute a plan. Yeah. So it seems like it symptoms are symptoms are the same, but on a smaller scale, maybe mm -hmm. you know, like reduced. Yeah. Cause some of it is, I mean, 
yeah, as a child, if, if ADHD is a child, but you might get up from your seat a, a bunch, but at some point as an adult, you know, you're supposed to stay in your seat. It's a difference of whether or not you actually want to. <laughs> right. And you develop skills too. What, what people don't realize is it's not that you've outgrown it. You've developed some skills that have helped you to kind of manage, you know, that's why we have people who click their pens during meetings or they shake their foot or, you know, they might twist in their chair. There are all sorts of things that we do as adults that we know are more socially acceptable. So we, so we know that that's something I can do. Um, and we've really tr started to kind of normalize fidgets. I mean, all those bubble pop things and mm. the spinners that were out there for a while, those are all things that you do to kind of help you um, get your wiggles out, so to speak, as an adult in a socially acceptable way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, I have plenty of those. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. All right. So let's talk about the, the umbrella. Depending on the, the person, they might include different things under this umbrella of neurodivergent. I've heard some people who say, well, no, that's not really neurodivergent. That's a symptom of a neurodivergent. Um, so can you kind of give us what are the umbrella things that fall under that category? Typically from everything that I've experienced or read it, it, it started with autism, that that was when it was first identified as neurodivergent. And it was done within the context of, we need to be able to advocate for ourselves, you know, because we think about advocating for someone who is not able to walk or they're blind. And so initially neurodivergent came about um, for those kids or those kids, those adults to advocate for themselves. But since then, I feel like it's kind of, from a school perspective, it's changed to kind of include so many things. Um, we think of neurodivergent here in our building as, you know, ADHD or bipolar, um, those diagnoses, um, even cognitive impairment, those kind of things where you're where you are not typical for that age. And we will talk about neurotypical kids and then neurodivergent kids. Um, where we're looking at where they're not developing the same as a typical first grader or a second grader. Okay, I want to go back to bipolar because I've heard some people say, well, okay, we're going to include that in there along with anxiety and depression. And then I've heard other people say, no, we're not going to include that. We're going to put that over here in this category for like mental health. Is there, are there advantages, disadvantages? From the perspective that I'm coming from in terms of how can I help the student or how can I help this family? I'm gonna use that umbrella because I'm saying there's a need for support there. There's a need for advocacy. So when I'm, when I'm using it, the reason that I would use it in that way is I'm saying they might need additional supports. I have to kind of put some things in place for them to be successful. Whereas a neurotypical kid does not need those supports. They're able to do it independently. So when I think about using it, that's, that's where I come from or that's my perspective. There's actually a neurological difference, right? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Because I don't think people maybe realize that people who haven't done any of the research on it or have that in their personal experience that there is that the brain is actually functioning differently than a neurotypical brain um, in the parts that are firing and those kind of things. Todd Womack, who's your friend who connected us, uh, we're both on the board of ministry for our denomination and so for our district, and that's part of the credentialing process. So one of the things we're doing is helping people to move through that process to get ordained. Um, and then, of course, we have people who are in that process 
moving towards ordination who would find themselves in that category. So they might be ADHD, um, dyslexic. Uh, some of them do have mental health. So whether or not we want to put that under that category of bipolar, anxiety, depression, or they might have autism. And so we're kind of trying to help people. And one of the things that I'm noticing is that there are a lot of adults who, and I'm saying this because I'm a neurodivergent, like I notice it in them and they're not diagnosed. And I'm like, I really want to help you. What are some of the things people maybe who they've, maybe they've considered, like, I think we've all thrown out the term, oh, that's just my ADHD kicking in. You know what I mean? But then there's people who really are. For those people who, those clergy who are like, I'm wondering if maybe this is me. Uh, what are some things that they might look for in themselves? And then how would they go about getting that diagnosis? Because now they're adults. They don't have maybe some of the same similar pathways you would as a, a student who's in school. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a couple of things that you would want to look at. Are you able to perform your daily tasks successfully? Or are you noticing that you're missing steps? You're losing things? Um, that's a big one. That's a big one in my own household. You know, where did I put that? Because a lot of times we're distracted or we're not focused on what we need to be. So that's when you notice is that it kind of creates problems for you where you're like, I am consistently struggling with this behavior, whether it be being organized. Um, and I'll go back to executive functioning because that's a big one just in terms of being able to plan something and execute it fully is a really big deal because some people... Um, become very overwhelmed with a process. And if you you are noticing that you are overwhelmed with the process, it's time to kind of like dig deeper and look at where where are those struggles at um, so that you can make a plan for it. Because it might be, you know, you talk to a therapist or your doctor, or it could be that you just need to put some coping strategies in place. Like I, I know I can say for myself, I need lists. I need to write stuff up and I need to physically cross it off so that I'm visually seeing, okay, I've completed this step because chances are I'm going to walk away and I'm going to get distracted by something and I'm not going to be able to refocus myself on what my tasks are for that day, if that makes sense. Uh, oh yeah. I have, I have a lot of coping strategies. I think that one of the things that people run into, at least same with me, same with me was I had a lot of coping strategies. And then what happened was I I moved into a new area or I took on some new responsibilities that really leveled up. And now my coping strategies were now they were either ineffective or they only helped with certain things. Like I noticed that for some people like, okay, you're fine when you're going through this part of the ordination process that has very clear steps. You fill out this paperwork on this date, you go to this class, you, you know, but then you get into a, a phase of ministry prep where it's less guided. You know what I'm saying? Like it's more, you're going to have to make your own path and decide where we're going to go here, where you're going to go there. And that's when people kind of start seem to like kind of fall apart. I guess ideas, coping strategies for people who find themselves in that new phase. I think uh, the number one thing that you always need to know is um, how you learn best, right? Are you a visual learner, an auditory learner? Um, how do you learn? Do you need multi-sensory learning? Uh, because 
that's going to help you right out of the gate to know I need to do things in a couple different ways. For me, I'm a visual learner. So when I'm actually studying for things, I have to write it out so I can see it in my own hand. Um, and that helps me to study, right? That would be the first one. How do you learn best? And then really planning out what are the steps you need to take in that decision process. So um, a lot of times I work with kids on, um, I'm going to give you a, a child one, you know, what are the steps to going to a birthday party? Well, you buy a present, you wrap it, you get a card, you go to the party, you know, what's the steps that go into that and being really mindful of that and then checking it with someone and saying, am I missing any steps here? Because chances are you probably did not think of something and, and someone can help you with that. But just organizing yourself through those steps is really important because I think what happens is a lot of times adults will freeze up because kids freeze up too, where you're just like, I'm just not going to do anything then because it's too overwhelming of a process. Yeah. And I think that is a key for, for several of them that are the, the overwhelming part where you get that paralysis, you get stuck. Like I can't start, right? Because it looks like procrastination, but I don't know that well, maybe I'm just defining it differently. I don't know that it's really procrastination. It's more like you're stuck and you just can't get, because you don't know what, if it, if I need to add those first two or three um, steps. Maybe are there some tips that you might say of how to get unstuck when you find yourself in that where, okay, now I'm paralyzed because I, th I think that there's this tendency where then you just, your brain just melts down and there's a tendency for some people just to not want to quit. Right. And I think part of that is reframing your thinking. So thinking and instead, instead of like, oh, I'm freezing up or I'm procrastinating because we tend to think of it in that way. What about this process that's hardest for me? You know, am I, I'm struggling with having too many choices? Um, Cause I can say personally, if you give me too many choices, then I will be struggling with those and have such a hard time picking. Whereas if you just gave me a couple, I'm, I'm going to do better. So is it the choice process, like deciding out of a, a, a bunch of things? Is it more just the planning the steps and um, noticing all the details? Um, I just think about kids and adults who are ADHD. Sometimes they see the big picture, but they don't always notice the details because they're rushing through them. Um, and so part of that is kind of knowing where your struggles are too. If you, if you struggle with decision-making, if you struggle to notice the details, then it might be that you kind of have a mentor or a support person that can help walk you through it together. So you can say, okay, what did I miss here? For me, I'm not a detail person. So when I write a report, someone else in this building is reading it for me because I know I'm going to miss some stuff and I know I need that help. Um, so I had that coping strategy in place. So part of it is, where do I struggle? So just being able to define it, not necessarily by procrastination. There's a reason that you stopped. So what's that reason? What's the hardest part for me? And what can I do to uh, kind of approach that differently? I have someone who's coming on the podcast who, like, this is their struggle. Too many choices. I think that's a struggle for most of America, but <laughs> definitely for those of us who are neurodivergent. So I have the a calendar app so people can just see here's my schedule and you can pick one and he's and so and i sent him the link and he's like can you do me a favor will you just send me like three dates for him that was overwhelming to be like 
look at your calendar. That's too many options. That's too many options. Just give me three and I'll pick one that works with my calendar. I think that maybe we hesitate to ask for those kind of things. Even seeing things as a strength too, because I think that's hard for people. We tend to, um, we tend to not ask for things because we don't want it to be missed or something that we can't do when really we just have to say, listen, I'm at my best when I'm given a narrow amount of choices. Um, or I really need to learn in this, in this environment. I, I need things visually. That's my strength. Um, even how I define that to you, I could say, I am not, I'm horrible at auditory just identifying your strengths and kind of approaching it that way and really seeing it in a positive aspect. And it helps other people because then they're very willing to accommodate you. Like, sure, that sounds great. And I love that. I I feel like that's something we could really work on, especially those of us who are adults of finding ways to frame it of, you know, in a positive way, whether it was to say, we don't have to clarify of, oh, that's just too much for me. That's just too overwhelming. Even though we know that it's too overwhelming, right? how somebody would go about getting tested and then what would be like what would be the advantages having a diagnosis I guess the best place you could go to get diagnosed you could do that a couple places you can go to your medical practitioner or you can go into a mental health clinic to see a therapist and a psychiatrist and a psychiatrist can do Uh, We have multiple forms that we use. The biggest one that we use to identify something like ADHD would be a Connors. Once we do that, the Connors really tells you where your strengths and and your struggles are, so to speak. And then you can start to plan around that. Like it kind of uh, creates a picture for you. And I'm going to go back to if you're like me and you're not a detail person, sometimes you need to see the big picture for you to have that aha moment of, okay, yeah, I get it. And I do do that. And I, and I need to have a plan for that. Um, so it helps you to kind of look at, look at those things and really begin to plan around them. Because if you know there's an area that you struggle, then you can put those supports in place, whether it's a mentor or a, a calendar or a plan or whatever that is to help you. That's kind of those first steps and really kind of talking through where your difficulties lie and how to address those openly, it's, the, it's like the best thing for you to kind of move forward or to continue to grow. Working with a therapist, is there a difference between cognitive behavioral therapy and occupational therapy? What's, like, what's the difference? Would one be more advantageous for, or than the other? There are benefits to both. And sometimes we have people that access both of those things. Because you can have ADHD and also have sensory processing disorder, right? You can have two different things going. You're, you can be what I like to refer to as a mixed bag of different things. And so the, sometimes there's some overlap, right? There might be things that a therapist would suggest to you that would also be suggested by the occupational therapist. For example, I have a really hard time studying, right? That's not my strength. Uh, And so I have to put a lot of supports in place for that. And one of them is chewing gum. An OT would also recommend that for you because it activates that portion of your brain that helps with concentration. The benefit of an OT is if you're working on sensory things, they can kind of give you what we call a sensory diet, um, some specific strategies that address your specific needs. For example, we have uh, children on autistic spectrum who need a lot of deep pressure 
And one of the things we use for them is a weighted vest. So at times where they really have to concentrate and be able to focus, they might wear a weighted vest that helps them feel grounded um, so that they can learn. With cognitive behavioral therapy, that's really working on your thought process and, and thinking about how your thoughts are connected to feelings and how those feelings lead to actions. So a lot of times with our thought process, we talk a lot about how you can be a positive thinker or a negative thinker. The, the best way for me to talk about that is just, it's almost like a fixed mindset. When we think about fixed, it's I can't, I'm horrible at this, this never works out for me. That's a specific thought process, right? That's kind of negative thinking. And when you have those negative thoughts, it's gonna trigger an emotion in you, right? If you even hearing, I, I'm never gonna get this, I never win, um, that makes you feel sad. And then you make a choice, maybe that doesn't help you, right? Where you might throw the game pieces uh, or those kind of things. So part of what we would work on in cognitive behavioral th therapy is kind of thinking about that thought process. And it, am I having a negative thought or a positive thought? Is it a true thought? Uh, because are you really never, or is it sometimes I don't, I don't win, or occasionally that happens to me. So teaching kids and adults how to change their thinking is like one of the biggest things that you can do, because if you can frame it positively for yourself, no matter what the struggle, then you can have a plan for it. But I think if we don't kind of address those negative thoughts, then we don't realize that's actually where it starts for a lot of people. They have a negative thought. It's sometimes an untrue thought. They have a feeling and then they make a choice um, that doesn't work out for them. And that's a great distinction between the two of how you see one, one is more of actually beginning to change your thought process, whereas the occupational therapy is more of, okay, what are some practical coping strategies that help you work in that environment, which also I did not know that about the gum, but that is why I snack all the time when I'm writing my sermons. Yes, it is. <laughs> crunchy carrots, right? Yeah. Anything that's crunchy, we love that stuff. Once it starts getting a little warmer, I can go for a run before I work on my sermon. And then that will, that definitely makes a difference. So those are great advantages to seeking a diagnosis because then it leads you to getting the therapy that you need, whether it's counseling and cognitive behavioral therapy or occupational therapy or both. And obviously there are some medications. Will you talk just for a minute about medication? I think that there are some people who are just like, I don't even want to bother to get tested because that's the only thing, right? The only reason you would want a diagnosis is so that you can then get medication. But then also there's probably some people who need medication or they would, it would really help their life um, beyond the therapy and occupational therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, those kind of things. We just talk a little bit about medication. There's probably a lot of misinformation out there, like what's available, what's the purpose. I think people are afraid of becoming addicted, those kind of things. A lot of times when I think about medications, obviously the one that first comes to mind when we talk about medication, particularly with kids, is we think about ADHD. And that would be like a stimulant medication, which helps you to focus. The best thing about a stimulant medication is that it wears off. You don't have to build it up in your system. It doesn't take, you usually take it. And by the end of the day, it's out of your system, right? So you'll know right away if it works for you or doesn't work for you. That's one of those benefits of, of being on a stimulant medication. 
what I would say there is those abilities are there with you. The medication helps you slow down in order to focus on what you need to do. There's medications like for depression, uh, those medications or bipolar, those are ones that have to build up into your system. Um, and so sometimes it takes up to a month for you to start to reach that therapeutic level uh, where you are seeing the benefits. And for example, with bipolar, um, we kind of think of bipolar as there's highs and lows, right? And the idea behind medication is that it evens it out so that you're not having the incredible highs and the low lows. It's just more even. That's a benefit of medication for that. For depression, that's also one that has to build up. And what I would say to you about all medications, when you're choosing to do it, everybody's body's different. Everyone's brain is different. What might work for someone else might not work for you. And the best thing you could do is when you do go in and you decide you're making that decision of, I, I think I'd like to try it. You want to be very thoughtful about what you're sharing um, with a psychiatrist or your doctor. Because I think a lot of times what I've noticed is parents will come in and kind of vent to the psychiatrist about, you know, what's going on. And, and really, they're just wanting to tell their story of things are really bad at home. But then it makes it sound like it's severe when it might not be. So it's important to kind of look specifically at symptoms in a way that's not reactive, so to speak. That's why those Connors are so important because they're asking specific questions um, that will help the doctor or the psychiatrist to look at it in a very specific way. But if you go in kind of from that emotional standpoint, sometimes you might, that's when you hear people say, I hear this a lot, well, I don't want them to be a zombie. Well, part of that is a lot of times if you're going in and you're th saying things are really bad and you're kind of really intensely talking about these problems with, with the psychiatrist, they're going to understand it to be in one level, at one level, when maybe it's not. So it's always important to kind of think, okay, am I here? I'm not here to vent. I'm here to kind of say, these are the problems that I'm noticing at these particular times. That's one of the biggest things that I think happens for families is that they, they're kind of misplacing some of that venting. Venting is important. That's what you're going to do in therapy. Uh, when you go to a psychiatrist, or you go to a doctor, you're going to be very specific. You're not coming from a place of emotion. You're coming from a place of observation, non-judgmental observation. I like those ideas. Um, and so I imagine probably as an adult, if you could, whatever, symptom journal, I guess, before you go in and, and talk to someone about it. I want to go back just for a second to ADHD. I'm, I've heard, I've read some articles recently that there are also some new medications, newer medications out for people with ADHD that are non-stimulant. There are. I'm not um, as well-versed in the medication. Not since I, when I worked in a clinic, a mental health clinic, um, I, and I worked closely with a psychiatrist, I felt like I really had a handle on um, what medicine we typically use and how we use it. We're, we are seeing an increase in non-stimulant medications. Again, I'm going to go back to everybody's brain's different and, mm -hmm. and, it, and it might really work for you, um, and it might not. So part of it is you might be trying a couple of different things to see how it works. The thing about those medications, the stimulant and non-stimulant form for, for focusing and managing distractions for ADHD, they both wear out. 
um, rather quickly. They're, they're like a day. You take it for a day and then it's gone by the end of the night. You'll notice with a lot of times with kids where a student might be on medicine um, during the week, but on the weekends, he's not. Because typically with any medication that you take, there's a side effect. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes one of the side effects for a stimulant medication could be that you're not as hungry. You don't eat as much. Um, so we talk about, you know, make sure he eats breakfast first before he takes his medicine because maybe he won't eat a big breakfast. Or on the weekends, we're not taking it so that he can just be his authentic self and be well and, and have a break from it. That's the benefit of those kind of medications is that you can kind of stop them if you want or take breaks from them. What are the advantages of a neurodivergent brain? Like, because we know the brain works differently than neurotypical. So what are some of the advantages of having this brain that's different so that we don't just focus on the fact that we struggle with this or that? Yeah. Typically, those are creative people, right? And we're pretty quick. We can be fast problem solvers and fast thinkers. We might miss some of the details, but we're, we're fast on our feet, so to speak. That's how I tend to think of myself. I struggle with the details, but I'm fast on my feet. There are different things that we're going to do really well just because of our heightened energy level, those kind of things. For example, you might be very distractible, but you're not bothered by loud noises. I tend to think of you know, those ADHD kids, they can manage a lot of activity in a room. They can manage um, noises and it's not going to upset them. There's so many ways I could answer that question. Those are my, the ones that come right to my mind is, you know, creative thinking. Um, Some of my kids on the autistic spectrum, I have one that's just so creative and so smart and can memorize all these things. And we, Sometimes people don't notice those things about them. And you, and you really want to say this, this student has so many wonderful things that they can do and so many thoughts that are there. Um, if you just sat down and talked to them, part of it is kind of looking at someone from a strengths perspective really does change, change the way you view being neuro, neurodivergent. The people who are autism spectrum too, they're, they're the collectors. So they're the ones you can go to when you're when you need some obscure fact or detail or you're like tell me about this book or whatever you know I need a book in this category or whatever you know that kind of thing yes I've had a student before who was obsessed with vacuum cleaners you could ask him anything about a vacuum cleaner and he'd he'd tell you all about it so (laughs) that's someone you could go to and say hey I'm having this problem funny but we think about it and they're like those are the kids that have those that knowledge that's a great way to think about it they're collectors of knowledge and that's a fun subject right because a lot of times with kids it's planes or horses or whatever you know that kind of thing my my daughter is the dog person she knew everything about dogs Uh, but somebody had to create the Dyson you know right yes And someone had to appreciate that Dyson. I don't have a Dyson, but I appreciate a good vacuum, that's for sure. (laughs) Maybe some words of advice for people people who are pursuing ministry and, you know, they're somewhere on the neurodivergent spectrum, whatever their diagnosis, uh, words of advice, words of encouragement as they pursue this. Being thoughtful and kind of really investigating your own feelings. When you have a feeling and it's a strong feeling, whether it's like, oof, I can't do this, I'm freezing up, um, or you're feeling really frustrated and angry with the process, really kind of exploring, okay, where is that feeling come from, coming from? 
and what can I do about it? Because more than likely you are struggling with something and, and you might need some help getting those steps in place for you to kind of know, okay, this is why I'm really struggling with this process because you get, I have too many choices. So really just beginning to kind of be thoughtful and reflective, reflecting on this is when I've performed my best. This is when I'm in my element when I feel most successful. And this is an area where I struggle and, and, and I need more support at that time. Because the more you can kind of plan ahead and really think about where you're going to need the most support, you can put those things in place and, and be more successful. Yeah, that's great advice. I, I have said multiple times, that there seems to be a place where people will get stuck in the process. And really for both, it doesn't matter if you're neurodivergent or neurotypical, there seems to be a, a place. It's just that for neurotypicals, it's easier for them to move through that wall. Whereas neurodivergence, you know, they'll keep going back and going back and going back rather than stopping, reflecting, asking those questions, and then, you know, figuring out how can I go over or around or under mm-hmm. or who can help me to, to do those things. Whereas for neurotypicals, it's a little bit easier in, in a sense for them. They see the path a little bit, maybe a little bit more naturally um, to get through that blockade. And I don't, I don't want to lose any more good clergy. So and we definitely need a few more creative innovators in the, in the church. So the more we can keep the better. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. 